this morning, if you're, if you're not sure, we are continuing our, our look through the book of Luke. We're in Luke 7, 36 to 50. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. If not, uh, you can grab one. They're on the tables just outside the door. And uh, here's how I want to begin. I want to begin by telling you about a very dark period in Roman history. Between the years 249 and 262 AD, so just over 200 years since Jesus walked the earth, there was a plague that ravaged parts of the Roman Empire. The epicenter of the plague was the city of Alexandria, which is kind of in northern Egypt now, but then was part of the Roman Empire. And this plague has become known as the Cyprian Plague, or the the Plague of Cyprian, because there's a man named Cyprian who was a church leader, a bishop at the time in a nearby town. And most of the information that we know about the plague is from his sermons, because he was preaching to the people who were affected by the plague, and those sermons have been uh, preserved. And so anyone examining, like medical examiners, researchers going back and trying to understand this plague, they look to Cyprian's sermons. Here's how he describes the plague in one of his sermons. He says, The strength of the body is dissolved, the bowels dissipate in a flow, that a fire that begins in the inmost depths burns up into wounds in the throat, that the intestines are shaken with continuous vomiting, that the eyes are set on fire from the force of the blood. So, you can imagine that being preached on a Sunday morning. He's, he's acknowledging the, the pain that everyone is going through in that region. Uh, The scene inside the city of Alexandria in particular was horrific. Here's a painting uh, done by Jules Elie Delaunay. This was painted uh, in 1869. So just depicting the scene, it's just called the Roman Plague. And you can see there kind of the angel of death coming from door to door. Uh, The historians tell us that about 5,000 people a day died because of this plague. So the population of the city went from 500,000 down to about 200,000 in short order. So it was a terrifying time. Everyone around you was dying. You didn't know who would be infected next. Everyone was affected, young and old, rich and poor, those uh, within the church and those without the church, Christians, non-Christians, everyone was affected in the same way. However, However, there was a major difference that was highlighted by those who were there witnessing it, a difference between those who followed Jesus and those who did not. Uh, Dionysius, who was the bishop of Alexandria at the time, uh, he was corresponding, writing you know, with other bishops to telling them what was going on. And we have those letters. And so we see the difference in terms of how the church responded and how those outside the church responded. I'm going to read to you first uh, the non-believers. He says, At the first onset of the disease, the heathens, that's the non-Christians, they pushed sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were even dead and treated unburied corpses as dirt hoping thereby to avoid the spread of contagion and of the fatal disease. So he's saying there what is, I guess, not surprising, that at the first inkling that someone in their lives had uh, contaminated the disease, they they would push them away. They'd get as far away as possible. But there's a difference with those who were identified themselves as Christians. He says, Most of our brother Christians showed unbound love and loyalty. Never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy. So in the case of the Christians, when they saw someone in need, they they tended to go towards them. They they expressed love. They expressed compassion. And, And the question should be asked, well, what... I mean, what's the difference here? What was it about those who followed Jesus that led them to put themselves in danger for the sake of others? 
I mean, we would expect Christians to have uh, peace in the, in the face of death. That they would not be, you know, weeping and moaning and wondering where they're going. They know where they're going, but here it wasn't just peace. It was, it was abundant compassion. See, the truth is that the Christians didn't just have hope beyond death. They knew that they deserved death already because of their sin. And they had experienced the grace and forgiveness and compassion of God. And so because of that experience with the love of God, that then enabled them to show compassion to the people around them. Commenting on our passage today, which is all about this and this scene, uh, Philip Reichen says this, A life of love is the grateful response of a sinner who has found true forgiveness in Jesus Christ. A life of love is the grateful response of a sinner who has found true forgiveness in Jesus Christ. See, the Alexandrian Christians, they are yet another proof. Proof that we see throughout the New Testament, throughout history, of what happens when someone comes into contact, when some, someone genuinely experiences the grace of God, that it doesn't just stay within them, that it, it's revealed in the way that they treat others, in how they live. And so this connection between experiencing the forgiveness of God and then showing love to others, this connection, this gospel connection, is what we're going to examine today. Because in our, in our scene, we have Jesus basically explaining this to someone who, who really does not understand it at all. So this is our, our big idea, the for forgiveness and love. And we're going to work our way through this text in three parts. First, a picture of forgiveness and love. Then a parable of forgiveness and love. And finally, the principle, the main point of Jesus' teaching of forgiveness and love. So number one, a picture. Uh, just so we remember the context, Jesus is going about his ministry. He's in the area of Capernaum. He's going from town to town, healing, teaching, ministering. And in one town, uh, he gets a dinner invitation. Here's our first verse, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him, uh, asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And this would have been very common for like a, a leader of the town to invite a guest rabbi to come over to their house. But in your mind, uh, don't picture like a private sort of dinner party, like in someone's dining room. A better picture to have in your mind is, is a block party, because uh, they would have, this would be a very wealthy home, and they always had a courtyard kind of in the front or the back, a big open courtyard. And in the middle of the courtyard would have been a low a banqueting table. And so the guests, invited guests would come. They would recline on pillows kind of on their left shoulder. And they would eat with their right hand. Their feet would be out behind them. But the gates to the courtyard would be open. So everyone from the town would kind of wander in, see what's going on, chit-chat. It was a very public event. And, and for the Pharisee, this was kind of a, a part of his status, inviting the guest rabbi, having him to his home. So it's all very typical, it's all very public, but then something unexpected happens. Look at verse 37 and 38. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he, that's Jesus, was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now the word behold here tells us that like this was surprising. That this was not expected. As she entered, everyone would have been kind of, kind of shocked. And we see why. Luke here says that, uh, describes her as a woman of the city who was a sinner, which most likely means that she was a prostitute. She was someone that everyone knew. Everyone knew what kind of lifestyle she led. Uh, everyone knew that she had no good reputation and really no right to be here and certainly no right to approach this, this honored guest 
And yet that's exactly what she does. You can kind of feel the, the tension of the scene building. Because people who would have been eating and chatting would all of a sudden would stop. They'd look and they might murmur to each other, what, what is she doing here? What, what is, why is she approaching Jesus? See, we know from the text that it's, it's not that she just happened to come into the courtyard. If you see there in the text, it says she, she learned. So she was somewhere else and she heard. Everyone in the city is probably talking, right? You know who's at Simon's house? They're talking. And so she learned that Jesus was there, but she wouldn't have gone straight to the courtyard because she comes with an alabaster flask of ointment. This is a very expensive uh, like bottle of perfume. Think of it like a, like a savings bond. It's something that you would, you would keep in your home for a rainy day and you could go and cash it in. So this isn't something you would just carry around with you. So she heard that Jesus was there and then intentionally went to her home, got the alabaster flask, and then, and then she entered the courtyard. So she seems to have a very specific purpose. And it seems to make sense that her goal was to come and to anoint the feet of Jesus. She wanted to, to worship at the feet of Jesus. We can see, though, from like when she gets there, um, she kind of becomes overcome with emotion, though. And so the, the questions that people are, are asking themselves, like, what, what is she doing here? Why is she doing this? We would also, like, if we're not clear, if we haven't understood the whole passage, wonder, like, what, what exactly is her purpose? Like, a lot of people heard that Jesus was there in the courtyard. Why did she go grab a flask of ointment and then come and want to anoint his feet? Well, it seems pretty clear that she has already been impacted by the ministry of Jesus. That already you see the emotion that wells up in her as soon as she gets into his presence. She already knows who he is. We can, we can fairly assume that she has been one of the people in the crowds somewhere where Jesus has been teaching. He doesn't seem to know her. So it, probably it's not the case that he healed her or did something like that. Probably his teaching has impacted her greatly. I mean, Jesus, his whole purpose at this point is to impact the lives of, of everyone there who thinks they know God. He's preaching about repentance and forgiveness. I mean, maybe she was there when he was giving the sermon on the plane when he said, you know, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And she is someone who probably never expected that the kingdom of God would be something that she could have access to. And now there's this rabbi who's teaching that we, that everyone can access the kingdom of God. Everyone can be forgiven. And it clearly has impacted her heart. Impacted her life to the point that she goes and finds the most expensive thing that she has and she comes to him. But when she gets to the feet of Jesus, I mean, I think I would say that things don't go as she planned. Because when she's there, I mean, I'm not sure if you've ever been in the presence of someone that you've idolized, someone who's impacted your life, and then you're actually there in their presence, and all of a sudden you're feeling these things that you weren't expecting. And all of a sudden, tears start to stream down her face. And, and, and they're falling all over Jesus' feet, and she wasn't expecting this. She hadn't brought a towel. Her, her clothes were probably filthy. And so she does the only thing that she can think of. She, she lets down her hair and begins to wipe his feet now, if there, was, if there was silence in the courtyard up to that point, at that moment, there would have been a, a gasp. Because in that culture, a woman does not let down her hair except in, in the presence of her husband. It's a very intimate, a very personal thing. This doesn't mean that because of her lifestyle, she had questionable morals. This doesn't necessarily mean that she had romantic or erotic motives. 
what I think it means here is that, that she's so overcome with emotion, she's, she's kind of forgotten herself. That, that she's so caught up in, in this moment of being there and all she can think is that she, she wants Jesus to know how much that she loves him and that she's thankful to him and so she just does what comes naturally. She wants to clean his feet and show him that love. It's a little tough for us probably to put ourselves in her, in her shoes. I remember I had a friend of mine um, who did some missions work in, in Thailand uh, working with you know, a bunch of different ministries there, but he said one of the things they would do is go minister uh, to the women on the street, the, the sex trade workers. And he said when they would go out to, to share with them, he said they always went in twos or threes, and they always had uh, a woman share with, uh, with one of the women on the street. Because he said it, it was almost impossible for, for that woman on the street to talk with a man and not assume that whatever that conversation begins about, it's going to lead to some sort of sexual encounter. He said it was impossible for them to to conceive of a man who would want to give something without taking. And see, that would have been this woman's lifestyle. That would have been her mindset. And yet she had met a man who had not wanted anything from her. She'd met Jesus, who had given her everything. Everything that she'd been longing for. Even things that she never thought that, that she could have for herself. Like forgiveness and acceptance. Like a sense of value. And, and, and purpose. And so there in the presence of Jesus, this woman was indeed filled with gratitude. This, this is a beautiful picture of intense and emotional love for Christ. And what we are meant to see here is that this, this should be typical. That this is the natural response for those that truly know the forgiveness of Jesus, who've been impacted by him. So we begin with, with something that would have made many people in the courtyard, probably even us, if we think about it, if we try to put ourselves there, we're probably a little uncomfortable just with that display of emotion, especially here in North America, right on the West Coast. We, we like emotion, but, you know, sanitized. Not tears spilling out, not this level of, of intimacy. That's the first picture. But there's another picture in this beginning scene. And, and it's a picture of the response that we get from Simon. So from the woman... We see her just weeping, just, just broken before Jesus, so full of gratitude. But look at, look at Simon's response. Verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. See, right away from Simon. I mean, this is Jesus. He knows what's going on in his head. Right away, the things that he's thinking are very harsh, very judgmental. You can see in his wording the way that he thinks of people. He says, uh, Jesus should have known what sort of woman this is. Meaning in, in Simon's mind, there are categories of people. There's those you associate with and those you don't. And this one was clearly in the second. Even the mention of her touching Jesus means for Simon, there are people you keep at arm's length. You don't allow them to get close. Why? Well, he tells us because she's a sinner. She's fallen short of the glory of God. She, is, she has no reputation. She is definitely not someone that you should associate with, especially if you are a rabbi. See, what we see here is the culmination of religious and cultural stereotypes and prejudices. This kind of condemnation, sadly, is very typical in, in this culture. It's the way they view women. and In fact, sadly, it's, it's still, to this day, a problem in the Middle East. I came across uh, an interview with a woman named Nancy Khalil. Uh, she has worked for many years in the Middle East doing uh, work and ministry there. 
And she describes uh, the common view of women in this way. She says, the worst sin that a woman can commit in the Middle Eastern culture is to lose or appear to have lost her virginity outside of marriage. The most important asset that she has as a woman is her reputation. She says, if a woman has nothing but her reputation as a chaste woman, then she always has a chance to succeed. But if she has everything but her reputation, she is lost before she begins. This is Simon's mindset. Probably many in the courtyard, this was their mindset. This woman is worthless. She she is nothing. And, And if Jesus, if he was really a prophet, I mean, a prophet of God, of the holy God, he would not associate with her. So both of them have the reputations tarnished. And we see in Simon this this hard-heartedness. It's a contrasting picture of both overwhelming love and extreme judgmental coldness of heart. Two pictures, two ways of seeing others, two ways of seeing Jesus. So before we get into the next section, let me ask you this. If someone were to take a picture of your life, uh, a scene in your life, not uh, an Instagram picture with filters and like curated content, but just a picture of your life, of the way that you treated people, not only the way you treated people, the way that you thought about people, what would they see? Which way would they lean in terms of diagnosing the state of your heart? Would it be warm and and, and gracious and loving towards that of the woman, or would it be cold? Like when you think about the way that you react with people, do you catch yourself thinking like, like Simon? Man, if they would just, if she would just, if they were more like... So we have a contrasting picture, but really it's, it's a picture of humanity. It's a picture of us. And Jesus' goal in this situation is to to put the microscope on Simon's heart, not just for the crowd, but mostly for him. See, the next thing we're going to see is Jesus sharing a parable of forgiveness and love. But the interesting thing, I think, is that he, like Jesus could have just laid into Simon, right? He knows what he's thinking. He knows the situation. He could have taken that long banqueting table. I'm sure Jesus had the strength. He could have flipped that thing. Be like, what are you doing, Simon? You invite me in. You, You don't show me any love. Look at this woman. He could have just like a thunderbolt or lightning bolt, I guess it would be. He doesn't, he doesn't do that. Look at what he says, verse 40. It's very, starts off, starts off very calm. Verse 40, and Jesus answering. That's an interesting word, answering, because Jesus knows what he's saying. He hasn't said it out loud, but he's answering his thoughts. Answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. Now he's about to, I mean, he's going to really lay into Simon. Like slowly it builds. But notice, you really get the sense that Jesus doesn't just want to crush Simon. He really wants for him to see that there's something missing in his heart. He's telling the parable for the sake of instructing and rebuking Simon at the same time. This is a very gracious thing. Do we see this? There are times when Jesus just lays into the Pharisees. Here, he's, he's really showing, no, I want you to see what you're missing. So he tells a parable. Here it is. Verse 41. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, you can tell, he knows this is not going well. Uh, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Now, let's stop for a moment and just really consider this parable. It's a short parable, just two sentences, but it packs a lot of punch. 
And really what we see in here is, a, is just a masterful revealing of the human heart, of the human condition. I want to look at three, three things briefly that are in the parable that are necessary to understand so that we see Jesus' final point. So uh, three key things all uh, having to do with finances, uh, financial terminology. So first what we see in the parable is that there is debt. Now uh, a parable is an earthly story, earthly story with a heavenly meaning. So Jesus is telling this tale of money because he wants us to understand more something about humanity. So the debt here, the first thing we notice is that both of the debtors are in debt. Which sounds obvious, but Jesus is on purpose giving the story of of people with different types of debt. And he's comparing that to Simon and the woman. And what he's saying, look, is, is both of these people who borrowed, they're both in debt. They both cannot pay back their debt. One of them is massive debt. That, that's the woman, clearly. Jesus says of her that her sins are many. 500 denarii. That would have been a year's wages. Very in debt. The second person has maybe two months wages. So less debt. But Jesus' main point is that if you cannot pay off your debt, you're bankrupt. Both are bankrupt. I, was, I read the story the other day of this uh, day trader, I guess, in Denmark. He had a bad day. He lost $200 million in one day. And he lost so much money that the, the exchange, the monetary exchange that kind of all the trades go through, they had to dip into their reserves just to settle up the account or else they were worried that the losses would be passed down throughout the European market, throughout the world market. They, they had, that was how much money he lost. But listen, that guy, he's in the same essential condition as, as one of us if we can't pay our mortgage payment. Or pay your line of credit. Because when you're bankrupt, what it means is that you, you don't have enough resources. You don't have enough capital to cover your, your losses. That's true of all of us in our sin. That's Jesus' first point. We all have debt before God. We see this Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us. Even if in comparison, we're, we don't think we're as bad as someone else. That's not the essential truth about us. We all have sinned. We all have debt because we have all turned our backs on the law of God. We've broken the commands of God. See, the woman, she was very aware of this. I mean, how could she not be? Probably every, everyone every day was telling her that she's a sinner, that she's filthy, that she's vile. She, she knew that. But Simon, Simon wasn't so clear on this. And part of the reason he wasn't so clear is because in his mind, he thought he had a lot of capital. He had a lot of currency. That's the second thing we see in this parable, a sense of, of currency. For, for Simon, see, he had a lot of types of currency. He had social currency, moral currency, spiritual currency. He was a leader in the church. People thought of him well. He was well-respected. For Simon, he would have thought to himself, look, I got a lot going for me. When it comes to me and God, I, I'm good. Because look at all the things that I, that I have. Look at, look at my pockets. I, I I got banknotes. I got a lot of bills. But the thing about currency is that currency is not all have the same value. I mean, there are times when you can have a dollar bill in your hand and all of a sudden it's not worth as much as you thought. There was a time um, in Germany's history where a, a dollar bill, a mark, became worthless. And the reason for it was because it was after the First World War 
They had borrowed a whole bunch of money to finance the war. They had lost the war. And then the, the allies, they made them make reparation payments. And so they had to keep printing money. That was their decision. Let's keep printing marks. And what happened is that the value of a mark plummeted and inflation skyrocketed. So you can see the denominations. They had four, $5 billion note marks, $500 million. Eventually, uh, that guy there, he's wallpapering uh, his wall with, with marks because the, they weren't worth anything. They were better as wallpaper than to actually buy something with. See, currency is, is only worth something if it's connected to something of value. And Simon, if you picture him, he's a man with his pockets. His bank account is full, in a sense, morally speaking. He thinks he's got it all together. But in the eyes of God, that, that currency is worthless because it's all tainted with sin. It's all tainted with self-righteousness. He was a very prideful man. He was not a generous man. He was not a kind man. Though there were certain commands, certain parts of the law that he was very good at keeping, there were whole other parts of it that he was, he was not doing at all. The parts that people couldn't see. See, both for Simon and the woman, their debt of sin, it, it far exceeded anything that they could pay. But the challenge for Simon is that he did not he didn't realize it. And I would say that's, that's still a problem for us, isn't it? Are we not still tempted to feel better about ourselves because of what we see in others? We compare ourselves and think, you know, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm not like this person, or, or I'm better off than this person. I reacted better than that person. We're very, uh, very quick to minimize our sense of debt, and yet what Jesus is saying is that everyone's in debt. But thankfully, there is a moneylender who forgives. Uh, the forgiveness we see here is that the moneylender cancels all the debt, not because he thinks they're going to pay it off, not because they're close, not because, you know, there's some, it's not anything to do with that. The moneylender, who, who is a figure of God himself, cancels the debt simply because of grace. It's unmerited, undeserved kindness, and the main difference, really, there's a lot of differences between Simon and the woman. The main difference is that the woman, she recognizes, she believes that God, in fact, has grace for sinners. So this parable, in two sentences, is really a miniature of the gospel. The good news of Christianity. Look, here is the truth. Every one of us, we are in debt. Every one of us has currency, but it's not enough. The, the value of it is, is minimal and dropping. Every one of us needs help. And every one of us can find it through Christ. This is, this is the gospel before even the full revelation of the gospel. Because Jesus is on the road to the cross. He hasn't yet been there. Well, he will cancel our debt. In these two sentences, Jesus, he declares the good news that is essential for all, all humankind. But, but this isn't even his main point. He's just saying this because what he's saying is, look, you need to know this. Because your reaction to this reveals whether you actually know the gospel. That, that's where he's going with Simon. The third thing that we see here is, is the principle of forgiveness and love. Because what he sees with Simon is that Simon clearly does not understand the nature of God. Because the way that he's treating the woman, the way that he's treating Jesus, reveals the fact that he has not actually experienced any grace. The next few verses is where Jesus kind of starts to pull it together. Uh, verse 44, then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. 
You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. So the principle of forgiveness and love really is pretty straightforward. We see it there. Jesus says, he who is forgiven little loves little. The woman who is forgiven much loves much. This isn't just a gospel principle. This is a life principle. It just makes sense that in situations where we receive help, depending on the amount of help we receive, we, we, our reaction is bigger or smaller. I just, just this morning saw a news story about a woman who was uh, stranded in the jungles of Hawaii for like day, almost two weeks. I don't know if you saw that. So imagine, imagine her level of thankfulness versus someone who was like lost in uh, downtown Vancouver. Or I always get lost in Richmond. Even, imagine that... I don't know where you get lost, but imagine, you know, before we had GPS, right? And you would just be like, where, where am I? And you'd go to the gas station, remember that? And you would ask someone and they'd say, oh yeah, it's just around the corner. And your response would be, hey, thanks, thanks very much. Really appreciate that. And you would, you would walk on, right? You'd go where you're going. That is not how you respond when someone finds you in the jungle after two weeks with a broken tibia and, and just desperate. You can imagine her level of what she would say when they would come and there's a helicopter that found her and they came and rescued her and she would not stop saying thank you, right? Thank you, thank you so much. Thank you for finding me. Thank you for not giving up. When she got back, she would be writing notes and sending gift baskets. She would be just over the top. And no one in her life would say, man, you just need to calm down, okay? Everyone would say, yes, yes, you thought you were dead. We thought you were dead. And someone found you. The level of response is, is fitting. And what Jesus is saying here is, look, Simon, the level of response from you is not fitting if you really understood what God has done for you. The woman, with all of her emotion, all of her sacrifice, this is fitting. This makes sense. You, Simon, you, I mean, you didn't even give me a kiss when I walked in. And just so you know, that's, that would be normal. If you're a Greek or Italian or something, you know that that's, that's what you do. Uh, Simon didn't do that. He didn't give any water for Jesus' feet, which would have been very rude because they're all sitting there. That was the whole point. They're, they're lying at table, and so their feet, from the road, the mud, and the feces, you, you would typically wash a guest's feet. Simon didn't do that. He hadn't even anointed Jesus with oil, which again would have been just customary and kind. See, all these things were like slaps in the face to Jesus. Things that if we were there, everyone would have seen those things. They would have seen the way in which Simon would, had, had welcomed Jesus officially, but not really. This is kind of like, um, I don't know if you ever were at a party as a kid, and a birthday party or something, and then you, all of a sudden you realize, I think I was the pity invite. You know, you look around, and you're like, I think that this kid's mom and dad said they had to invite all the boys in the class. That's why I'm here. Because no one's talking to me, no one's, no one's having fun with me, and you feel horrible. That, that was kind of like Jesus. Simon had officially sent the invite, yeah, come on in, but he hadn't done the things that actually show love, show respect. Simon had invited Jesus into his home, but he had been barely hospitable, which spoke volumes about the way that Simon actually felt about Jesus. He was welcoming on the outside, but, but not on the inside which should give us pause. Like if you're here this morning and, and you're, 
you would call yourself a Christian, call yourself a follower of Jesus, it, it should give you great pause. Because what it tells us is that it's very, very possible to welcome Jesus into your life officially, but have no real affection for Christ. To not actually love him, not actually respond to him with, with emotion, with, with genuine honor and genuine respect. It's very possible to, to do the things that Christians do, to be here on a Sunday morning, to have a Bible on the shelf, to, to call ourselves a, a Christian, and yet our life, our interior life, and even our, our outward life does not reflect a great level of thankfulness and gratitude and hospitality with Jesus. See, that was Simon. He, he would have said that he loved God, that he worshipped God. But there was a huge gap between what he said and how he, and how he lived. And, and the gap, the origin of that gap, came down to the fact that, that he had not really experienced the forgiveness of God. Because he did not really see his need to be forgiven. That, that, that was the point of the parable. Both of them were in debt. The one who was forgiven just a little, barely understood the depth of forgiveness. The gratitude was minimal. The love was minimal. See, for Simon, his understanding of what it meant to be a, a child of God, one of God's people, what was very, was very organized, very manageable, very, you know, check boxes, you might have that view in your head. That look, to be a Christian, there, there's some things I got to do. I got to do them in this way. There's probably some people I should hang out with, some other people that I shouldn't. My life should look a certain way. And if I do those things, then all is well. What we, we don't tend to have in our mind is the woman who's, who's broken at the feet of Jesus, who's overcome with emotion, who's getting everything costly in her life, bringing it to the foot of Jesus and saying, it's yours, it's yours, because, because you haven't just impacted my life, you've given me life. See, that picture is one that should compel us and probably convict us. Because if you're like me, man, I really like checkboxes. And I really like keeping track of all the things that I do that are, are good, especially in comparison to others. And for me, I feel much more comfortable when I keep my emotions in check. I mean, I know here I yell a little bit, but that's because I'm here at, at home. You know, the birth of our child... That's great. It's wonderful. I'm not weeping. Some are weeping. Some of you access your emotions well. Others of us, it, we need to see that this, this is not just an option in terms of one way you could respond to Jesus. This is the normative picture of what it means when you genuinely are impacted by Christ. Not that you're weeping every day, but that your, your heart is stirred up with affection. That you're willing to put yourself in positions where it's costing you something to show Jesus honor where well, you're not too worried about what everyone else is thinking, what the people around you are seeing in the way that you act. In the last few verses, Jesus kind of, he wraps it all up. Verse 48, And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Her faith saved her. In spite of the mountain of sin, in spite of the condemnation from those around her, the final twist, I think, is that this woman, who, if you were just write it on paper, of all of them there, she would have the, 
She would be least likely to experience peace in her life, and yet she left with peace. But, but the wealthy landowner, respected in the community, who by all accounts should be at peace all the time, man, I don't think he had peace that night. He was probably furious at what had happened to his dinner party, that the focus had been taken off of him and all the great things he was doing and had been put on Jesus and this woman. He was probably unnerved by the words of Jesus. He had no peace. Again, because he didn't, he didn't really know God. I want to read again Philip Ryken's statement. He says, A life of love is the grateful response of a sinner who has found true forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Is that your response? Is that our response to life, to the people? I mean, when there's a plague in the life of someone you know, how do you respond? To what extent will you go? What what peril will you put yourself in for the sake of helping those around you? Do you have such a peace? Do you have such a gratitude for what God has done in your life that you're eager, you're willing, you're, you're ready to help those in need, even if it costs you something dearly? And when you have the opportunity to honor Jesus, like even at great cost, is that the desire of your heart? Is that what you feel compelled to willingly, gladly, because you have an opportunity to, to sacrifice something for the one who sacrificed everything for you. See, the, this dynamic of forgiveness and love, this, this is the essence of the gospel. And what we see here, even, even before the cross, is just a beautiful picture of what a life of love looks like. And I believe that's what God is, is pushing us towards. He, he's always pushing us that way. Because when we better understand our depth of need we better understand how much he, he loves us. So that's my prayer for us as we go from here in response to this text, that each one of us would see ourselves more clearly, not to bring us down, but so that we would be lifted up in Christ even more. Let's pray together. Lord, I do pray for us as a people. I pray, Lord, for those of us here who, who would call ourselves your followers. Lord, I pray that we would, we would be convicted, Lord. Convicted about those times in our lives when we have hesitated to respond in ways that honor you, in ways that, are, that show our gratitude, that show our love. Also, Lord, I, I pray that you would help us to see those areas where we're hesitant to show love to the people in our lives. God, that's, that's not in keeping with, with the truth of, of your love for us. And so I pray, God, that each one of us, Lord, that we would not, we would not see these things so that we would feel horrible about ourselves and, and feel condemned, but rather, Lord, we would recognize that even in those failures, you are, you are there for us. That all of the debt from beginning to end of our lives has been taken care of. You've forgiven it all. And God, I just pray that that would, that would lift us up and God, prepare us, enable us to show the kind of love that you've shown us to the people around us. And I pray also, Lord, for those here who would not yet call themselves followers of Christ that are just checking things out, interested, Lord, in what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I pray, Lord, that, that they too would see, see the depth of your love for them. And also, Lord, what, what the pattern of Christian living looks like. How it is that we see the people in our lives differently and even the things that we have differently. Because we recognize everything, everything good in our life is from you. 
So thank you. Thank you for this text. Thank you for this time. I pray, Lord, that you would indeed stir up our hearts, Lord, to, to know you more and love you more. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.